T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. It is 6.07 on a Saturday evening. 80 degrees already. Wow, wow, wow. That's amazing at this hour. Uh, Great to be with you. Uh, What a gorgeous weekend for Mother's Day. Yay, moms. Yay, moms. Yay, moms. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) Well, thank you, my dear. Go ahead and guilt me into saying it on the air. Well, you know, it's like, and so I've got the teenage kids, and it's like they're just completely overwhelmed by finals. So it's not like we can kind of like go and just hang and, you know, just go to a brunch or whatever. I mean, they're really. Stressed out. I feel bad for them. I think I think that would be a good idea, though. You go to a brunch and then, oh, I go. You know, by, no, my well, no, I, no. I was I was saying everybody. I was saying everybody. Well, you could go to a brunch on your own and be like, just say, give me the money <laughs> to pay for brunch. I'll go on my own. No, but I think everybody should go to brunch, and that'll give the kids a little bit of a break to just sort of right reset. Well, it is tough, and and it's just yeah. Anyway, it's I think I think there's a lot of pressure on kids. I feel like there's more pressure now than there was. Back in the day, which I know was a long time ago for some of us. But anyway, I, I just um, – thank you, Jonathan. You're very sweet. That's the, you're the first person to wish me happy Mother's no, Day. No. And, and I want to wish all the moms out there and, and moms-to-be uh, a happy Mother's Day because, um, hey, it's the most important day of the year. What can I say? <laughs> kids, are you listening? Kids, are you listening? Your mother would at least like a gift card. Get her a gift card to somewhere nice like Bed Bath & Beyond. Or just, it, it, uh, Mom, I love you. Yeah. And you're fabulous. And all the times I've told you you're embarrassing, I didn't mean it. <laughs> you know, something like that. That, <laughs> that okay, would work. Now that's going a little too far, <laughs> that last part. You were fine up until you got to the embarrassing so, stuff. Are, so are you going to like wear that? Like, are you going like, to wear, 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 wear that? You know, all those kinds of little things. Anyway. Oh, well, we've all been there. But anyway, um, it, it is a fabulous, fabulous weekend. And it's absolutely gorgeous out. And it's it's glorious outside. Um, we have a great show lined up for you. Uh, great to have Jonathan Lowe, uh, who's always so great to work with on Saturday evenings or, or any other time. But, oh, it's always Saturday evenings when we work together. And also Sloan Martin from our newsroom. Um, we've got a lot going on on this show um, we're going to talk this half hour with really somebody who is a top diplomat at the Humphrey School. I've spoken to her before, but I'm fascinated to get her take on the elections in France. I know that this is sort of a footnote now in all the kerfuffle, shall we say, over the president's firing of Mr. Comey. And we will get to that, I promise you. Uh, Dave Schultz is back from Israel. And uh, one of the things that that I am so appreciative of, you know, with, with Professor Schultz's time is not only is he a political analyst, but he is also a law professor, a constitutional law professor. And there are legal issues here that we're going to examine. We're also going to examine later on in this hour uh, comparisons to Watergate, ridiculous, not ridiculous, craziness. I don't know. There may be tapes in the Oval Office. Doesn't sound that ridiculous to me. Um, We're also going to talk with, um, in the 7 o'clock hour, with two two very interesting uh, authors about uh, or experts about 
gentrification and what is going on in downtown Minneapolis. Um, there is a, a new book called Gentrifier, and it talks about the gentrification, which means kind of making things in downtown upscale, and they certainly are, especially in that North Loop. That's where all the cool people live. I mean, all the cool, cool people live there. So we're going to talk with an expert about that, but we're also going to talk with the uh, project manager for the Nicollet Mall project. And folks, if you work downtown, um, certainly if you go downtown, if you live downtown, this has not been a great situation. And it's still not great. And it is extraordinary because we are actually, what is it, um, about eight months away from having the Super Bowl here in downtown Minneapolis. And so we're going to talk about this project because it has gotten really extended and really, really drawn out. So that's in our 7 o'clock hour. And then in the 8 o'clock hour, David Schultz is back from Israel. And so we're going to talk to him uh, about his thoughts about Israel, but also certainly the legal constitutional ramifications, the political ramifications on the firing of Comey. And I, I do want to point out that a recent poll said that 84% of Republicans are supporting the president. Even though when you kind of do all the math here, for most polls, he evens out with a 40% approval rating, which is was historically low at this point in his presidency. So a lot to talk about. But uh, first, uh, it's a pleasure and an honor to have Mary Curtin. She is the diplomat in residence at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Uh, Ms. Curtin, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for oh. having me. Well, it's great. And, and I know I've spoken to you before. I know you have yeah. experienced all over Europe uh, as well as France. Let me, let me get your thoughts as a diplomat on the French elections. First of all, I, I suppose the polling in France in, in that second round suggested that Mr. Macron would, in fact, triumph over Marine Le Pen, who was the far-right candidate. Uh, from where you sit as a scholar, as a former diplomat, uh, was the margin of victory significant enough? And it was, I, I believe he won by 65%, if, I, if I'm not correct. Right. He got it was 65 to 35. Okay. Yeah. What, what, yeah. what did that say to you? And how carefully were people like you who are, you know, diplomats, former diplomats, scholars watching this election? Well, everyone was watching this, this election um, in, in Europe in particular, but also you can imagine in, in Northeast, uh, in North Africa, in the Middle East, um, as well as in the United States and Russia, that a lot of people were watching this election for the same reasons that they would watch an election in the U.S. or U.K., which is that France um, still plays a, a really important role in the world. And also, people were looking to get a sense of how strong this right-wing nationalist movement would be. And it proved not to be as strong as some feared, but, you know, 35% is still significant and means that that sentiment is something to be reckoned with. Marine Le Pen is the daughter of a political figure that, that is really quite well known in France, who himself ran yeah. for the presidency. I mean, it's, isn't my understanding is that this is the best that the right wing party has ever done? It is. It is the best, and a lot of people thought that uh, the father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, had um, kind of uh, stepped back and allowed his daughter to uh, come to the fore as someone who is a little more polished and 
potentially more acceptable to people outside of that really hardcore um, right-wing nationalism. But, um, you know, it's very interesting that um, it's not just interesting what happened with Marine Le Pen, but the winner, uh, Macron, who will become president, I think, tomorrow, you know, they inaugurate their presidents very quickly, um, is not from either of the traditional parties that have dominated France. So it's not just about Marine Le Pen. It's about the rejection of the leadership of the traditional parties in France. And so he comes into office uh, not having that structured support from the political parties. And it'll be really interesting to see what happens in the um, parliamentary elections that take place in about a month. I think it's four weeks from today or or tomorrow or five to see um, what voters do now, because it's no longer that um, binary decision. It's not Macron or Le Pen. Now it's going to be voting for candidates for the parliament. And he may or may not have a parliament that's friendly to him and to the things that he'd like to get done. So it's even more complicated than just, you know, the right wing. How strong is the right wing nationalism? Well, let me ask you this, because um, I, I know that there was a lot of discussion, and there also seemed to be sort of an analysis in the press and, and the little I read of the European press as well as the American press that mm-hmm. somehow this is being viewed you know, globally as perhaps the potential for another domino to fall. The first was Brexit, that the second was the election mm-hmm. of President Trump, and then this would could potentially be the third one to fall, and instead it didn't fall, so this is sort of the blockade. I mean, is that realistic? Is that is that the right way to look at this? Um, I think that's possibly a little oversimplified um, because for two reasons, like I just said, 35% is pretty significant. Um, it means that there are a significant number of people in France who feel dissatisfied with the whole array of how things are done in France, ranging from membership in the EU to immigration policy to, you know, other things. Um, and so just to, to put things in that very simple term of did they win or not win, um, I think oversimplifies the implications of this. And there, there are still strong voices in Europe that question the totality of sort of the the EU outlook of further integration, of um, being friendly toward immigration, which the Le Pen is certainly not. And there are other movements in other countries, which even if they didn't win, like in the Netherlands, there was also that question, would the far-right party there win a couple months ago? And it didn't, but that doesn't mean it's going away. And so, you know, I think, like I said, it's not just about what's there with the far right, but also the erosion of some of the traditional parties and what implication that might have for the EU, but also for, you know, sort of U.S. relations with Europe. Let, let me ask you this. One of the things that emerged um, in the final days of the campaign, which certainly was an extraordinary echo of the American presidential race was this mm-hmm. hacking of the Macron yeah. campaign mm-hmm. and the fact that it was immediately tied to Russia, although it sounds like it didn't get the kind of play that it got here and that, that they were almost ready for it. But mm-hmm. what was what was sort of the reaction to that um, and, and the impact of that and, and sort of what, what are you hearing about 
uh, diplomats' reaction to to the hacking? Well, um, I think that starting uh, a while back, there was um, a sense that Russia was becoming more active in, um, you know, sort of an old Cold War term of disruptive measures or active measures of um, where you can't win something, you try to disrupt it. And and it happened in the, the going all the way back to elections in Poland in the fall of 2015. Um, there was and it followed the same pattern, leaking of um, cell phone recordings or emails from people that the Russians didn't like. Um, and so it happened, you know, in the United States, there has been fake news being promulgated by these same sort of, hack, you know, hacking, hacking and bot sites. And so I think the French political establishment across the board was ready for it. That plus the fact that Marine Le Pen actually went to Russia and received some uh, loans from Russia, turned off a lot of people on top of her far-right nationalism. And so I think that they were ready for it. And actually, I don't know if you saw this, that the Macron campaign actually created themselves a whole bunch of fake accounts with fake documents in it so that when hackers got into their system, they wouldn't know what was real or not real. And so they were actually actively defending themselves. And then by the time that it got released, France has an, a 24-hour news blackout about the election campaign for the 24 which is, hours. Which is these, fascinating. It's fascinating, and it's common in a lot of uh, European countries. And, and so what does, it, what does it mean, the 24 24- It means that the news, well, for one, you know, they have a lot of limits on their advertising to start with, but it means that the news media may not report on anything about the election campaign in that 24 hours. So it's a Saturday, the election's on Sunday. So when this news about the hacking came out, of course, in today's digital world, that's a little hard because everybody's reading Twitter or whatever anyway. Um, But it meant that uh, there was virtually no reporting on it. And, and the reporting that did come out was focused more on the fact that somebody apparently in Russia was trying to do the same thing to the French campaigns that had been done to the U.S. And so there was more of an attitude of being critical of the hacking rather than looking at the documents that were leaked. So I I, I think the accumulative experience of these hackings is making people more suspicious of the hacking. I see. Um, Yeah. So I think it's that is an interesting tide that may be turning. All right. Is that... People are starting to say, wait a second, who's doing this hacking? And what is Russia? Because it keeps always leading back to Russia. And what are they trying to do? And what they're trying to do is disrupt. And so we're not, and what the French seem to have said collectively was, but we're not going to let that sway our opinion. And so that's, that's a really interesting potential turning of the tide. Right. To say, because now, you know, the UK has elections, snap elections coming up in June, and then there's German elections in the fall. So it, what will be interesting to see is whether um, that technique of hacking and fake news is starting to be less effective because people know what it is now. Right. And this, this is all separate from this uh, extraordinary story that's developed within the past sort of 36 hours of, of this other hacking it apparently is, yes. Um, yes. you know, using a stolen tool from the, the uh, yeah. U.S. security uh, expertise and, and just 
doing that, but th- this is sort of separate in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, in terms, in terms of where Europe stands, and obviously Brexit is moving away, you know, moving along. Theresa May appears to be very popular in in Great Britain. Yeah. Um, where, you know, f- from what you hear, and I know you've spent a great deal of time abroad. What What are you hearing about the reaction to President Trump, and you know, what is going on here in this country? Because I think a lot of people are reeling with sort of some of the unpredictable aspects of President Trump, as well as including not just his domestic policy, but his foreign policy as well. What kinds of things are you hearing in terms of sort of the diplomatic reaction? Uh, I think that there are two things. One, and I'm a retired diplomat. I don't work for the State Department anymore. But I think that a lot of American diplomats feel a tremendous amount of uncertainty about what our policies are and what what our leadership is going to be. So um, it's unclear how our relationship uh you know, with China or the EU or NATO or Russia is going to evolve because there's a lot of different voices out there. You know, the president might say something, Nikki Haley at the UN says a different thing. And so I think that that uncertainty, first of all, impacts our own U.S. diplomats, but it also makes our friends around the world um, unsure of where the United States is going um, whether it's on our relationship with China and or our relationship with Russia, and how will our relationship with Russia, for example, impact our relationship with the rest of Europe? And so I think that our friends would are, are discomforted by the lack of uncertainty in policy, but I also think that they are discomforted by the internal turmoil in the United States and that one thing that I think our friends and maybe even our not-so-friends expect from the United States is a certain strength and certainty of our institutions. And I think as some of those things get played out in Washington, if if that continues and if it makes it look like our institutions are in turmoil, then that that doesn't project a kind of solidity and predictability that I think our friends like to see. Um, and that's both, you know, countries who are friendly with us, but it's also things like, you know, pro-democracy activists or human rights groups or countries that advocate for those things. For example, we're very disturbed by the Secretary of State's remarks that, you know, our values are fine, but that's not our policy, and so we can't always follow our values. You know, to make statements that undermine, um, you know, what have sort of been at the core of some of our policy outlooks, I think is very uns- it's very unsettling for American diplomats, but it's unsettling for our friends. Right. Well, I just and it will, later on in the show, we'll visit with uh, Professor David Schultz, who's just returning from from I, I think I believe a State Department tr- sponsored trip to Israel, and oh, okay. it, you know he he said that, you know that, that you know one of the things that he's seen in his trips abroad is just that they seem just sort of uh, that you know internationally people are, seem confounded, and I suppose domestically yeah. as well by by like the president's Twitter <laughs> account and, yep. and the tweets, and yep. it's just and it's just it's just so unusual. To have yes. that kind of mm-hmm. uh, bluntness put out there, that it's just not sort of the norm. And so people are trying to parse these tweets, uh, and yeah. which is sort yeah. of newly chartered territory. Right. And like I said, I think people are confounded. Um, so, you know, if you look to the past, there are people around the world, diplomatic, you know, people who 
liked or did not like, say, what President Obama was in the Middle East, or liked or didn't like something that President Bush was doing. But they they didn't see within U.S. institutionally a chaos or uncertainty that they see now. And so, you know, that, that's kind of what we sometimes call the soft power side. It's sort of this projection of the United States as a place with stable democratic institutions. And that gives us a lot of strength. Um, and so to the extent that people within the United States are concerned or confounded by what's going on, that actually undermines, I think, our ability to lead in the world as much as sort of differences over what our policy is. And, uh, you know, as someone who represented the United States, that's something that worries me. Let me ask you this. I mean, one of the things you hear is that there are still like a great many jobs that are not mm-hmm. that are mm-hmm. unfilled, uh, right. you know, in terms of the diplomatic corps, in terms of mm-hmm. you know, dif- different aspects of the federal government. You know, you are a retired diplomat. I mean, is that is that actually true in terms of the diplomatic mm-hmm. corps? So, yeah. So what is what is the norm at the State Department? And I guess what's sort of interesting is that over the last two administrations, the Bush and Obama administration, there have been complaints from, you know, some career diplomats that there were too many political appointees. But now, you know, there are virtually no political appointees at the State Department. And the political appointees um, fill a, a layer in between the professional diplomats and the White House that provide um, the policy and the political leadership that the professionals need and look to to um, develop the big big picture policy. And there there is no no one has been nominated. Actually, I think someone was finally nominated to be deputy secretary, but. Um, there have been very few ambassadorial nominations, and those could come from within. Usually, seventy percent of those are from within the professional foreign service. Right. And so, um, where there were political appointees of the Obama administration, all of those were asked to leave immediately in January, which is pretty normal, actually. Right. But right. no one, except a couple of high-profile places like Israel, and I think now the UK and China that there have been no nominations. So there are very capable people being ambassadors in a lot of places or acting assistant secretaries. But when you're in that acting role, you don't have the, um, you know, the sort of the stamp that, that you represent this administration, you are the authoritative person. You're not an ambassador. You're, you know, right. you're charge, as they call it. And so the, what uh, Secretary of State Tillerson has said is that he's not going to start nominating people until um, he does a review and decides about the budget and, and um, it, you know, and then, so that means that then once he does start making nominations, you know, it takes a few months to get people through the Senate and things like that. So, right, well, they've got to be yeah. approved as well. I mean, I, I, you know, yeah. so they have to go through yeah. the Senate and be approved. I mean, yeah. how much further behind are they in terms of appointments at this point, which is, um, my goodness, we're, we're, we're four months into the, right. in the presidency's, the, the president's first term, compared to like where President George W. Bush was or President Obama yeah. was? So I've seen a couple of graphs, and they, in terms of people who have been actually approved by the Senate, um, 
they're not that far behind. But in terms of people who have been nominated, so having people in the pipeline, that's where they're pretty far behind. And, and are we talking all, I mean, obviously the ambassador level, undersecretary of state, I mean, what are some of the mm-hmm. other, are there, as I understand, there's, there are hundreds you know, of... Yeah, and, and there's hundreds. And so one approach would be to say, well, we're not going to have political appointees. We're going to nominate career people to these positions. But that would, um, but but the reality is that there there is a certain you know there's a certain layer down to the assistant secretary that needs to be approved by the senate, and then there are a whole bunch of other um, positions uh, that don't need senate requirement but had incrementally become political appointees. So they could very well say, no, we're going to use more professional diplomats than political appointees, um, but they should be at least figuring out who that is and not just letting people be in limbo for several months. Because when people are filling a role as acting, then, like I said, they don't, they don't have that authoritative stamp of approval as I am the person in charge of this issue and I'm going to lead sort of the policy discussions on that issue. So, and that impacts not just how people work at the State Department, it impacts how we relate to other governments, which is you know, what diplomacy is all about. So, all right. Um, well, listen, yeah. Mary Curtin, a fascinating discussion, and we certainly appreciate your expertise because it is, it, these are interesting times to say the yes, least. They and, are. Um, they are. And, and I, I always um, I enjoy being on, and I appreciate your, um, your inviting me and happy to be back again. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mary Curtin, a diplomat welcome. in residence at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Fascinating stuff. Um, it's fascinating that, that there all are all these apparent jobs that have not been filled, and um, you know perhaps the, the Trump administration will do that uh, fairly shortly. And coming up at eight o'clock, we're going to talk more about some of these issues with uh, the one and only David Schultz. Uh, we do have to take a break. I'm late. Sorry, folks. Uh, we're going to give you some weather, and then when we come back, we're going to visit with Y Spano um, about the comparison to Watergate with the Donald Trump firing of FBI Director James Comey. Fair, not fair. Maybe you can weigh in. You can text us, eight one eight zero seven. What are your thoughts? But we'll hear from Y Spano after we take a break and get some weather. You're listening to News Radio eight three zero W. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play it. Six thirty seven in the Twin Cities. Eighty degrees. My goodness, uh, that is. Um, it's been a while since it's been 80 degrees at 6.37 in the evening here in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy, along with studio coordinator Jonathan Lowe, um, will be with you until 9 o'clock. Great to have you on on a Saturday, a gorgeous day, the eve of Mother's Day, as I was kind of teasing Jonathan, the most important day of the year. But let's just uh, move on here. Um, obviously, this has once again been an extraordinary week uh, politically. With the firing of James Comey, we're going to be talking more about this in the 8 o'clock hour, the legal implications with David Schultz, uh, who is a law professor at the University of Minnesota, as well as a professor at Hamlin University. But uh, one of the things that sort of emerged and that came up very, very quickly in the aftermath of the firing of James Comey is, is this analogous to Watergate? Are there parallels here? And I've seen some really fascinating 
analysis here. And, and perhaps you might have some thoughts, too, as well. Um, 81807. You can text us if you want to give us a call, 651-989-9226. But joining us right now is Y. Spano. He's the director of the Master's in Advocacy and Political Leadership Program at Metro State. Uh, sir, thank you so much for coming on this evening. Good to talk to you, Esme. All right. Let me ask you. Um, what do you think? Some people say, yes, there are certain parallels, there are differences. What is your immediate thought? I've been struck mostly by the differences. Um, one, Russiagate, if we can call it that, <laughs> way more Why serious. not? It's <laughs> way more serious than Watergate. Is, is that, you know, uh, and actually, I, I will, you know, in terms of the allegations, I, I will say this, um, and just the allegations, um, some of you did tell me this, and obviously we all know where Congressman Keith Ellison stands on, on the, the political spectrum, but he actually said that in his view, the allegations or potential, um, the potential for this, if, you know, the, the most serious critics of President Trump are... Um, you know, if it, this does turn out to be true, which there, there's not that evidence yet, but it's because it involves the allegation of a foreign entity meddling in this country, so election, as opposed to just another political party. Is that where you're coming from? Right. right. Okay. In that, in in our kind of legal system, particularly, um, that that's a really serious problem, as opposed to uh, which. Watergate was kind of a black ops operation. You know, you, they were looking for dirt on a couple of people, and uh, the administration went way over the top to get the dirt, and then lied about it, and that's what right. brought out the whole Watergate thing. But in this case, if it's true, if anybody actually colluded with another government. That's a real. I mean, that crime is written down, and you can get prosecuted for it. So, right. um, well, you know, it's a bigger deal, right? Okay, and, and here's the deal. I mean, obviously, um, there are allegations out there. I mean, the thing about Watergate, and I actually went back, <laughs> found found myself reading about Watergate again. I mean, I did too. <laughs> I think to this day, though, I, I I don't think that there's any proof. That before the Watergate burglary, uh, you know, the, the burglary by the um, that was ordered by operatives of, of the Nixon campaign to burglarize the headquarters of the, the Democratic, um, I think it was the National Committee. There's no indication, I think, even to this day that, that Richard Nixon knew about that beforehand. Um, there's no proof of that. But certainly he was involved in the cover up. And that's ultimately what led to his demise. Is, is that is that your view of it? Yes, I, I guess I, I, uh, the, I, in reading about this, I came across uh, some Haldeman uh, notes that uh, were released just a few years ago, and uh, I didn't didn't have a chance to look all the way through them. So I don't know if, but they say a bunch of things about other charges about Nixon, particularly the one about. Uh, what he did prior to the, uh, Viet, I mean, when he was running for president and Humphrey was on the hook and Johnson was trying to get uh, out of Vietnam. And he uh, he 
you know, pretty clearly they knew that they had uh, contacted Chano, the woman. Oh, I read this as well, which is almost a separate – it's a sort of a separate issue. Um, The thing that that strikes me – and obviously this all has to play out. And and Watergate, I mean that took – and it was a long time ago, but I I remember it very well – you know, as as a young person uh, and reading about it, it took months and months and months and months to progress. But one of the things that I think is so striking about this is that even if even if it's um, – I thought the president, President Trump, has really not helped his own cause by alluding to tapes, uh, you know, potential tapes in, in the in the Oval Office – um, and and sort of suggesting you know that there might be tapes there, and then of all things, you know, turning up the day after this whole thing broke with of all people, Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, who was a critical figure in Watergate, somebody who was sort of the, the mitigating force and sort of keeping Nixon in check in the midst of this scandal. I, I, I was just sort of blown away by that. Yeah, yeah. Your thoughts about that? I, to me, that that what's happening here is, um, I've all I've believed for a long time that that Richard Nixon was mentally challenged. Let's say, I mean, he was very very bright, but a lot of folks have written over the years about his antisocial personality disorder. You know, his ability to sort of hone in and do what he th- thought he ought to do. And kind of really not care very much about what other people thought about it. And and the Vietnam thing is perhaps the major piece of that. I mean, thousands of people died while he was holding back peace. And uh, apparently it never bothered him much. So it, it's just, uh, uh, you know, that, well, Trump has his own, you know, the narcissistic personality disorder, which... I really have begun to read everything he does with that in mind because, for instance, the crowd size stuff, you know, that's just bizarre. You well, mean, mean his, his insistence that, that, that his yeah. crowds were bigger when, when there's evidence to suggest that perhaps that, that there's not or uh, – you, you Not know, evidence, I, is proof. It's proof, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and then I think the point is that, that, that the guy is – Actually, I think he probably believes that uh, his crowds are bigger. I mean, he actually believes it. That's what uh, narcissistic personality disorder can do for you. It can lead you into delusion. The other thing that happened just now with uh, the firing of Comey, so they get Rosenstein in there, right? And he writes the memo. And then for a couple of days, the staff says, uh, oh, yeah, that's why we did it. Because of Rod Rosenstein, which was, which was the initial account. And, and this is right. on the White House. I mean, that was the initial account that um, the president had fired Comey on the advice of the attorney general, Jeff Sessions, and the deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein. And then um, – and Rod Rosenstein had written this memo, apparently, it turns out, at the request of the president. And – they walk that back because there are reports that Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, was so upset by the version that President Trump was relating that he was ready to resign, which would not have been good <laughs> for uh, 
for, for the president. And he, he is not. But but there have been um, some some certainly some issues about uh, differing accounts of exactly what led to the firing. Uh, also, the deputy uh, director of the FBI certainly contradicting uh, the president's account that Mr. Comey had lost support of the vast numbers of FBI agents. So, so there are some differing accounts. But, but you know, at the end of the day, Mr. Spano, I mean, what we have here, though, is that uh, I think 84 percent of Republicans still support the president. So right. I, I don't I, you know, and I think that's what happened in Watergate is that he, he lost that that core middle support uh, from middle of the road Republicans. And when he did that, that was sort of it. And that's, uh, I think, another difference between now and then. Uh, there just really isn't much in the way of middle of the road uh, in in the Republican Party. It, it's it, we're much more partisan than we were now, and so there, there's you know if you look at the at the Watergate stuff, who was it on the committee? Howard Baker was kind of the chief uh, conscience on the committee. He was a Republican, and and a young Republican or youngish senator at that time, and really kind of set up uh, this voice of conscience. We don't get that now, right? You know? But, but not- there was, but there was also this sort of um, by the time that you know Howard Baker asked that famous question, "What did the president know and when did he know it?" There had been this hemorrhaging of, of information and conflicts, and then ultimately there was that revelation of those tapes. Uh, and the Nixon had tapes of these conversations in the Oval Office, and that was what was so fascinating about this situation yesterday, and that you know, the president tweeted, you know, Director Comey, you better make sure, you know, better hope there aren't tapes in the Oval Office, and Sean Spicer, the the, the press secretary, wouldn't deny it. Right. I, I thought that was remarkable. <laughs> it was remarkable. Right. But. In the backing down from the from the Rosenstein story to I just did it because I knew that to me I track that to the narcissistic disorder. This is hey, I don't need anybody else to tell me that I need to do this. I did it. I don't need validation. I'm always right, so I did it. And yeah, that it, to me is yeah. the way everything is starting to play. Well, but you know, but but what's interesting about President Trump is he puts it out there. I mean, I think to a certain extent, to be president of the United States, I, I think you have to be a little bit narcissistic. <laughs> I'll just oh, a little sure. bit, a little bit, <laughs> yeah. But 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 I think what what is it? What I also think is extraordinary is that in the middle of all this, you have him renewing his fight with Rosie O'Donnell, right. which which <laughs> is. You know, and and to his supporters, I think it doesn't matter. But I think you do have some Republicans who are expressing enough concern. People like John McCain. There are not very many of them, but you have a little group of Republicans who are saying uh, we're worried about this, and they include Lindsey Graham and John McCain. Right. And, and maybe maybe they're not relevant anymore. <laughs> well, it it it's. Um... It is really incumbent on the Republican Party now to begin to address what do they do about this? Because I think the longer it goes on, 
the more that it becomes their problem. Right. As Nixon became their problem. Right. And I think just like the Hillary Clinton emails, I I, I think this shows no sign of of going away. And and I think that's something that that this presidency is going to have to deal with. What do you think brings it to the next level, Mr. Spano? We're chatting with Y. Spano, the director of the Master's in Advocacy and Political Leadership Program at Metro State. What brings it to the next level as far as you're concerned? Um, Well, that's another interesting difference. Partially, uh, it's harder to, to for journalists to do this one because uh, so much of it gets into classified information so fast because of the government thing. Whereas with this, with the other one, they had a they had a nice criminalish kind of case in the United States that they could keep digging after, and then of course they got Mark Felt. Right. Uh, Mark, like the infamous, we, we found out, was it about eight to 10 years ago, we finally found out who Mark Felt right. was. Well, it's going to be interesting to watch this. I, I just don't think this issue of Russia, and a lot of it is the, the president's uh, you know, own fault. He's keeping this alive and burning <laughs> um, right. in a major right. way <laughs> uh, with all of this. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how it develops. I do think also with um, the kinds of Leaks we've seen also with the kinds of hacking we've seen. It'll be interesting to see if, if that can, revelations can be made there. But um, why Spano, uh, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your thoughts this evening. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. All right, folks. And we're going to be talking a lot more about this uh, in the 8 o'clock hour with Professor David Schultz, um, who in addition to his political expertise is also a law professor because it's – it's a fascinating topic. A lot of people are, are drawing the analogy. I'd love to hear what he has to say as well, uh, because this is uh, really a remarkable situation. And I think it's one, of, of, in, to a certain extent, as much as the president complains about the situation with Russia, I think the fact that he continues to tweet about it continues to elevate this discussion. Uh, anyway, I'll ask David Schultz about that. Um, anyway, we're going to take a quick break. You are listening to News Radio 830. It is Esme Murphy, along with studio coordinator Jonathan Lowe on News Radio 830 WCCO. Uh, coming up in a few minutes, we'll hear from uh, CBS News and, of course, Sloan Martin from our own newsroom. And then in our next hour, we are going to visit uh, with an author about a fascinating book looking at the issue of gentrification in Minneapolis. And gentrification is basically kind of taking that old, kind of rundown, beat neighborhood. That was pretty sort of low income, not very fancy, not very expensive. And suddenly it's pretty fancy and pretty expensive. And that is exactly what is going on with parts of downtown Minneapolis. We also are going to visit, and I'm really interested to hear about this, uh, Don Elwood. He is the project manager for the Nicollet Mall Project. And folks, if you have not been downtown recently, and I come downtown every day, uh, the project, I, I don't think, is going very well, and we're going to ask him about that. And I guess there have been sort of slowdowns, but one of the issues here, and there have been a lot of businesses that have left, certainly Macy's has left, and I'm not saying that that's completely due to this, but there are smaller businesses that have put, you know, said that's the reason that they have left. And also, uh, folks, remember, guess what's coming? Guess what's coming in the first few months of 2018? The Twin Cities is going to have its own Super Bowl. That's right. And even though you've got that North Loop area, which is the hot, cool place to be, 
uh, where a lot of my friends live, all, all the cool, hot friends of mine you know, that are <laughs> hipsters, they all live downtown in, in that North Loop area. It's, you know, and, and it, it's, they got the Whole Foods, they've got the places you can walk to, they've got the cool bars and the restaurants. It's a neat area to live. But then you've got this Nicollet Mall area, which used to be the crown jewel of downtown, and it is really, unfortunately, kind of a disaster. So we're, we're going to visit with the director of that. And then in the 8 o'clock hour, and I've only texted him. I've not actually talked with him, uh, Professor David Schultz, and he was actually in Israel. And I will ask him this. I, I know he does a lot of work on behalf of the State Department. I, I think he may have been there on their behalf, but he was there when all of this broke. This, that is in our 8 o'clock hour. So, you, folks, you got to keep it here. Much more ahead. You are listening to Saturday Night with Esme on News Radio 830 WCCO. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. T 